Hi, and welcome to Femmes Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Asiet, and this podcast aims to support, educate, and empower women to achieve career success and financial freedom. In each episode, Femmes Finance talks with successful women leaders, founders, and investors to inspire you in your journey to financial freedom. Check out the show notes, links, and resources on our page, femmesfinance.life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Femmes Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Asiel Altaeva. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Todd Finkel, who is an esteemed author and professor of entrepreneurship at Gonzaga University. With over three decades of experience, Dr. Finkel has made significant contributions to the world of entrepreneurship and investment. He's written over 250 articles, books, presentations, and grants, establishing himself as a nationally recognized expert in the fields of finance and investment. Dr. Finkel has recently published best-selling and national award-winning book called Warren Buffett, Investor and Entrepreneur, published by Columbia University Press. As of now, this book is translated to six different languages and is considered as one of the most up-to-date biographies of Warren Buffett. In today's episode, we'll be diving deep into Warren Buffett's business and investment strategies, exploring concepts such as value investing, margin of safety, and intrinsic valuation. So let's get started and learn from the wisdom of these legendary investors. Thank you so much, Professor Finkel, for joining us today. It's a great pleasure for me to host you. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here today. And I, I uh, just wanted to let you know that I have a lot of respect for you for starting your own podcast and, uh, and being a young entrepreneur, up-and-coming entrepreneur. You know, I teach young entrepreneurs as well, and I, I have a lot of admiration for you. Thank you so much. I, I deeply appreciate your words. So now before we start our podcast, I really want to know, how did you become interested in business and investing and what inspired you to write about Warren Buffett? I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is in the middle of the United States. And that's where Warren Buffett was born. I grew up in Omaha. My dad was an entrepreneur and I had four brothers that are all entrepreneurs. And uh, so, and I was very entrepreneurial as a kid. Uh, and Buffett was also very entrepreneurial as a kid. And uh, that's one of the themes in my book is I look at him through the perspective of an entrepreneur and uh, what he has done and what his motivations were and all the creativity that he's done in his life. So uh, I grew up in Omaha. I went to high school with Warren's son, Peter Buffett. So I had a, an affiliation to the Buffetts at a young age when I was 16 and going to high school. Uh, Peter was friends with a whole group uh, of people that I hung around with. They're all a couple years older than me. I was hanging around with older people. Uh, whereas what Warren says is hang around with people that are smarter than you. <laughs> I was doing that unknowingly when I was 16. So that was kind of my initial introduction to the Buffett family. I, so I've known them for quite a while. And my brother, David, knew Howie, as we used to call him, who's the older brother of Peter. My brother played handball over at the, the Buffett house. And he's lived in that same house since like 1958. And he bought it for $31,500. 
my brother knew Howie and my cousin, Steve Nog, knew Susie, who's the, the oldest kid. There's three kids that Warren has. And so I interviewed her for the book as well. And she gave me a, some really good insight as far as to the uh, Buffett dynamics. I got more inside Warren's head to learn about it and what it was like to grow up with Warren Buffett. Uh, probably the richest man in the world, if you include all the money that he's given away. So he's already given away $51 billion. An interesting fact on a side note is that most of his wealth, he has well over $100 billion now on him in his pocket. <laughs> and uh, most of that didn't come until he was after 50 because of compounding. So we have plenty of time to go ahead and make some money. Yeah, so I continued on and I went to college and my senior, I went to University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which is where Warren graduated from undergrad. And uh, my senior year, I went out to California and a friend of mine, his dad was watching CNBC all the time. And I didn't really even know what CNBC was, really wasn't exposed to that in my house. And so I got really interested in the markets. That was my first real exposure to the markets. And I was probably 20 years old. I went back to the university and I graduated. I got a job with Xerox Corporation and I made a lot of money and I was miserable. So lesson number one today, if you think money is going to make you happy, it is not going to make you happy. You need to enjoy what you do. And you need to enjoy the people that you work with. Learn from my mistake. It was a hard mistake to, to learn from. But I continued on and then I kind of followed my passion, which was investments. Because I, I got really interested in investments after being out in California. So I started an investment partnership with a friend of mine who was a, a broker. And we did that for a couple years. And we, we didn't invest we speculated. <laughs> There's a difference between speculation and investing. And uh, we speculated in futures contracts in gold and T-bonds. So we kind of went up and down uh, for a couple of years. One, one week, we'd be talking about what color our Porsches were going to be. Uh, and the next week, uh, you know, what graduate school we were going to go to. Another lesson I learned at a young age was, you know, when you're young, you don't know the way of the world. And when I was up uh, and doing great and talking about what color my Porsche was going to be, not everybody is happy for you. People will become jealous and envious. So you're much better off just keeping it to yourself or amongst your, your close friends. Otherwise, I can get you into trouble in more ways than one that we could go into today. So remain humble is the uh, lesson there. So anyway, we kind of went up and down, and that was a lot of fun. I had a great time, and and I, I still think that that might have been the most fun I've ever had as far as having a job was, was trading for those two years with my friend and it was called Gould and Finkel was our, our partnership. So I went on to grad school and so did my uh, friend. We went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison 
uh, I got an MBA. And then after I got my MBA, I went down, I had a contact at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, obviously in Chicago, and I interviewed for a job down there. And uh, back then, you know, this was before all the computers were set up and everything. They said that they could hire me as a runner. And a runner, for those of you that have not heard what a runner is, is they run back and forth to the checker and back to the pit where they're, they're all fighting for orders in the pit. This is in the old days. If I took the job, I didn't because they were only paying $7 an hour. So I, I didn't end up taking it. Uh, I always kind of wanted to do that. That would have been a, a great experience for me to get involved in the markets. But unfortunately, you know, life happens. And lesson number three, just because you want to do something doesn't mean that you can if you can't afford it. You've got to be able to pay the bills. So if you hear the these people say, oh, just go do what you want to do, do what you love. Well, the problem is, is that sometimes that, that's not going to pay your bills. So I went back up to Madison, which is where University of Wisconsin was, and I had a long talk with a former professor, and he told me that I was an entrepreneur because I was running a business while I was going to school full-time. He said that I'd be better off going to get a PhD because it's very entrepreneurial and that I was an entrepreneur. You know, I had no idea that I was an entrepreneur. I've never had anybody tell me that I was an entrepreneur before. And this guy was great. You know, if you have a professor or a friend or two like that, you are very lucky. And I was very lucky to have him sit there and tell me the truth and direct me, help to direct me and change my life. So I listened to what he said and I just thought, well, I have nothing to lose. I, you know, I never thought I'd go on and get a PhD, but I went on and I, I decided to, to, choose uh, entrepreneurship because I was really passionate about entrepreneurship and I was also running a business. I was I already had two businesses. So I thought that I would be a really good candidate to go ahead and teach entrepreneurship. So long story short, I went on and got a, a PhD. There were only two schools in the country that offered one at that time. There were only six jobs that were available by the time I came out uh, and I didn't get one of them because all the other people that were already out in academia as a junior faculty got those jobs and I was a new faculty member. But eventually entrepreneurship came, became one of the hottest fields in academia and I became the highest paid person out of the PhD program because of my expertise in entrepreneurship. So you have to be willing to take a chance and you have to be willing to go with your gut and your intuition and what you're passionate about. But, and I knew that I could pay the bills, you know, by doing this as well. You know, you know I'm going to be a professor. I know I'm, I was going to make good money, not great money, not, you know, wealthy money, but good money. So I'd kind of go fast forward now, you know, I've taught at four different universities for uh, the past 34 years. I have an endowed chair now at Gonzaga University. So while I'm at Gonzaga and the last school before that, I ended up having an opportunity to go visit Warren Buffett. Through my cousin, Steve Nog, he called me up and he said, Warren Buffett is inviting universities to come visit him. You should apply. And this is in 2007, right before the Great Recession. He, he called me up and so 
I went ahead and I applied. I had a nonprofit in addition to being a professor at the university. The nonprofit was with six other schools and we won a, a national award. We're providing free entrepreneurship education for university students and trying to help the community. And so I put that in my application to go visit Warren Buffett. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm friends with your son, Peter. <laughs> I went to high school with Peter. And uh, I thought for sure I was going to be in, but no, nope, I got rejected. His secretary said that the line is years long. Don't even bother to put your name on the list. But basically because everybody wants to visit Warren Buffett, you know? And so I didn't put my name on the list and I hit my head against the wall uh, thinking, oh, I should have put my name on the list. I should have put my name on the list. And I ended up writing a case study, being the good little academic that I am. I wrote a case study on Warren Buffett because I wanted to learn as much as possible about this guy because I thought he was the smartest businessman of our era, maybe ever. So I took two years out of my life and I wrote a case study on, on Warren, got it accepted at an academic journal, and then I had this epiphany, why don't I go ahead and send Warren this uh, case study that I just wrote and see if he'll invite us to visit him. And uh, uh, sure enough, within 10 days, I got a letter back from uh, Warren thanking me for writing the case study about him and uh, inviting us to Omaha to come visit him that November. That was in 2009. And 2000, March of 2009 was the end of the Great uh, Recession. We came in November of 2009 uh, the same weekend that he bought Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. So there were all these uh, media people following him around, but he had his focus on the students. Uh, Warren loves students. He loves to teach. Uh, he, he cares about people. He really does. So we hung around with Warren Buffett in November for a day. We had lunch with him, and uh, we had a two-and-a-half-hour Q&A with him and actually did this three times with two other groups of students. So the, the Q and A's are all in the book. It's all uh, primary research, you know, new, new information that hasn't been out there before. And then we, yeah, we went out to lunch after that. And I sat right across from him at lunch <laughs> and uh, this was a great opportunity. You know, sometimes opportunities come knocking a few times in your life. And this was one of them for me. So, you know, I didn't really have that many questions for him because I just wrote this case study on him for two years. So I knew all about Warren Buffett. The only question I had was how do you value a company? That's all I had. That was the only question I had. And, and he goes to discounted cash flow. And I, I was waiting for more and he didn't say anything more. So I thought to myself, I'm going to ask him again. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get a better answer. I go, away. How do you value a company? And he goes, it's discounted cash flow again. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe I better not ask him again because he'll think I'm, something's wrong with me. It was a great time. We had a great time uh, and meeting Warren Buffett. And uh, my students were very creative and innovative. Uh, you know, one had a, a camera that acted like a TV reporter and they were recording everything. And I never told them to do that, but they did that on their own. Just kind of like you, 
you're doing this on your own, this podcast on your own. That That's just awesome. And that's what they were doing too. They just did something entrepreneurial on their own. And that is something that Warren Buffett loves. I love it too. But Warren really loves people that are creative, that think outside of the box. And at that first meeting that we had with Warren, he said to us uh, that the most successful business people that he has met in his life are people that didn't go to these high-powered universities, but people that had the most business experience. That thought way outside of the box. Uh, And that's always stuck with me. Ever since I heard him say that, that stuck with me, and I say it to my students every semester, and I'm happy to share that with everybody in the world, uh, that that's what he said. It makes sense, logically, because if you look at Warren Buffett's life, Warren Buffett is, everybody, you know, thinks that he's this rich guy and he came from a, a, a lot of money and all this other stuff, but Really, the the biggest uh, surprise for me in writing the book was that he was born in 1930. And at one and a half years old, his father lost his job and he lost all of their money. So the family was destitute. Uh, His mother couldn't handle the stress. She started to take it out on on the kids, was calling him worthless. And his older sister, Doris, took a lot of abuse. Uh, and and that's kind of what he grew up with as a kid. People don't understand that. They think, oh, he's just this rich guy. No, he had a lot to deal with. So I think this is just my own personal opinion. It's not anything based on uh, empirical evidence. I think he, he had the or has even still the poverty effect in uh, growing up in that environment. And a lot of these people that grew up in the depression are like that. He ended up starting to make money as an entrepreneur, but not that long after that, he was selling lemonade when he was four years old on his neighbor's driveway. And then he started selling stuff door to door, you know, Coke and, and gum. And it just blossomed. I, I could go on and on and tell you about all these things that he did as a kid. And he eventually had $76,000 by the time he graduated high school kind of weaving in some Warren Buffett stories there for you. But I, I uh, my, my stories related to Warren Buffett and the students that I took to go visit him were exciting. The students loved it. And I started to get attention from people uh, on our board of directors or board of trustees. And one guy uh, wanted to go with us on, a, on his jet. So he told me to get six students and we ended up going to the shareholder meeting. I I did all these things with Warren Buffett for like nine years. Uh, and I never even thought about writing a book. I, I wrote like five articles. And then I just finally said, hey, I have enough material here. And I went to 13 shareholder meetings in Omaha. And if, if you haven't been to one of those, you should definitely go, everybody out there, at least to one. It's like a carnival and cult and a rock concert combined. You'll find a lot of like-minded people if you're into Warren Buffett and finance and investments and even entrepreneurship. I finally came to the conclusion about five years ago, I need to write a book on Warren Buffett. I have all this material. (laughs) And and 
all this information. And so I started interviewing some people and Susie Buffett. And uh, I had some friends that helped me with a couple various aspects of the book. Uh, a friend of mine, Matt Koffler, who's a CFA, helped me with the valuation part. Writing a book is just incredibly difficult. It is not easy. And to write a book on Warren Buffett, and really this is kind of a biography slash investment, you know, what is his secret sauce? What does he do? That alone is so difficult to try and figure out. I've got all these things that are in there that are so powerful. They've helped me as an investor, and they'll they'll help hopefully everybody uh, increase their ability to be financially independent. And I think the best chapter, personally, for me, is the one on behavioral biases. So behavioral biases is where we do stupid things. (laughs) Uh, You know, we follow people, what the herd is doing, uh, we're herding bias, or we're listening to talking heads on TV every day and what they say, and we go with what they do. Or uh, another one, my worst one, of course, I do probably a lot of these, even though I know about them, I still kind of do them, you know, it's Loss aversion is you feel twice the pain of losing than winning. So that's a big one. I believe it's Tversky and Kahneman uh, came up with that. So, you know, I've got a whole chapter in there on Warren Buffett's mistakes, his 21 investment mistakes that he's made. And I attribute the chapter on behavioral biases uh, as far as How did Warren make these mistakes? What did he do? What biases was he using unknowingly? And how can we learn from that? And uh, I got a chapter on Charlie Munger that's a little differentiated from other Buffett books. And I just thought you can't write a Buffett book without talking about Charlie Munger because that's his his right-hand man. And Charlie Munger is just brilliant. His book, or Charlie's Almanac it is a must book to get. And I've got three chapters on value investing. And, and another key part of the book is that I've got a whole chapter on valuation. So I look at two companies. I look at Geico, which is the one that he really made a lot of his money on. And I look at Apple. One of the, the weaknesses, I think, of all these Buffett books that are out there, I did research on is is that they never really went through step-by-step on how to value a company with a real company. So I was, you know, I read all these books and and they're giving me all these theories and big words and all this other crap. And I'm just thinking, just tell me how to do it. Just show me how to do it because I'm an entrepreneur. That's the way I, I think. That's the way I work is I learn best by doing. And if you're not showing me how to do it, it's not going to help me. And so I took quite a bit of time to figure this out. Uh, This was a big deal in writing this book, but I did it. You know, I, I went through everything. And so one of the things that I hear from people that are reading the book is that it's not a lot of sophisticated lingo and language. They can understand it. So, and that's what I was trying to do is I would 
define what all these variables meant, you know, return on equity and how do you do it? And I give all, all the, the years, the past 10 years for Apple, and I do the calculations for everybody. And I do a discounted cash flow and I show them how to do that. And I show them what all the variables mean and, and how you can change the variables and change your outcomes. Uh, and I, I took what Warren Buffett said to me, how does he value a company, the discounted cash flow? And I put it in the book. And I used it, a real world example on how to do it. So uh, I do have some FinTech in there that the last chapter I look at FinTech and digital currencies, I wanted to try and update, you know, the field of finance and entrepreneurship and blockchain. And I look at the performance of Berkshire Hathaway over the past 10 years, 11 years versus the S&P. Uh, they've been behind the S&P before last year, but then they outperformed the S&P by 23% last year. So they're probably ahead of the, the S&P um, as of the end of last year. Uh, and then I look at succession issues within Berkshire Hathaway and who's going to be Greg Abel's, the guy that's going to take over, and a G. Jane, who's the into to insurance. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing everything in detail. Now let's move on to the second question, which is related to books. Can you please share what kind of books have significantly impacted your investment strategy? And in general, what kind of books can you recommend for our listeners to read and investigate? I think everyone, if you're interested in investments in Warren Buffett, should read his shareholder letters. He has shareholder letters that go back to his partnership days and also Phil Fisher, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. Buffett is, they say, 85% Graham, who's the guy that he studied under at Columbia, Benjamin Graham, in his Intelligent Investor book, chapters 8 and 20 are the best, he said, to read. But Phil Fisher is 15% and Graham is 85%. So you throw a little, <laughs> you throw a little Graham in there, you throw a little Fisher in there, and you throw a lot of Warren Buffett in there, you know, and and you get his secret sauce on what he does. John Bogle, the little book on common sense investing, he was the guy that invented index funds. That's a very small book, but it's a very powerful book. He's the guy that founded Vanguard, which is where I have a lot of my money at because uh the uh, expense ratio is so low. Burton Malkiel, A Random Walk Down Wall Street is another great book. That's a classic book. Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street and Beating the Street. Joel Greenblatt, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. A lot of people say that's probably the second most powerful investment book. Robert Hagstrom, The Warren Buffett Way. Seth Klarman, The Margin of Safety. Uh, these are all great books uh, for your, your listeners to investigate. Great. Thank you so much for the amazing list of books. I'll make sure to include them all on our posts. Now, moving on to the next question. From your own research on Warren Buffett's investment strategies, which principles consistently emerge as fundamental to his decision-making process? And in general, how does Warren Buffett value companies and identify their intrinsic value? So Buffett, his investing style is value investing. He looks for 
a margin of safety before he'll buy some of these stocks. And this is what he learned from Benjamin Graham on Wall Street after he went to Columbia University, he actually studied under Graham, and then he eventually got a job on Wall Street. The thing that he really emphasizes in Charlie Munger is the most important thing is your behavior in investments, your temperament. It's not how you value a company that's the most important thing, but how you control your emotions. And you'll hear these guys talking about a guy with the IQ of 180. I don't want him on my team, you know, because if he can't control his emotions, he's not going to do us any good at all. Uh, so they're always kind of abusing people with high IQs because of that related to investments. But that that's a really important, powerful thing. And trying to determine the intrinsic value of a, a stock or company is kind of part art and part science. There's no magic formula to doing that. But I could go through a couple of the things, if you want, that I would look for and that Warren looks at. Stay within your circle of competence. Looking at the management team, you want a talented management team with a good track record that has high integrity and values and they're passionate. They're not overcompensated. They treat their shareholders okay. He understands the industry and the, the business model with, that you're dealing with. Often what Warren will do is he'll go into an industry and he'll read all the, the reports and talk to people in the industry, try and get a good feel for it. And he'll ask the CEOs of other company who they think is the best company, so he'll get a good feel. He'll compare the financials of everybody. He looks at moats. Who has a sustainable competitive moat, such as Coke has the, the brand. Geico, their moat is cost. Gillette has intellectual property, so does Apple. Those are all moats. He wants it to be a favorable long-term prospect. And related to diversification is an issue with Warren Buffett, too, because uh, if you look at his top four holdings of his stock portfolio, that is about 70% of his stocks. He tends to pick good long-term stocks, and he holds on to them. Although he has also said that he made a mistake with Coke when it got truly valued a while ago and he didn't sell it, but he kept it. But nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> and uh, the quantitative stuff is, is you want good economics. Uh, it's not a, an industry that's competing on price. Uh, return on equity preferred about 15%. Debt to equity, which is paid off within five years. Profit margins, a 10-year increasing track record and free cash flows that are consistent and strong, and you need those cash flows for the DCF model. Some other quantitative things that he looks at, a good return on net tangible capital, or ROIC, return on investment capital, a good return on that. Inflation is the firm available to go ahead and increase their prices if inflation occurs, and that's going on right now. What do they do with their retained earnings? Can they reinvest their retained earnings and keep up with the investment of the, the company? Do they do share buybacks? Do they do dividends? What's the valuation of the firm? And I heard this at the shareholder meeting this year. I gave three presentations of my book at the shareholder meeting. A guy comes up to me. I'm doing a book signing. He comes up to me and he goes, I read your book. He goes, Warren Buffett wants 15% on the day that he signs. This is the first time I ever heard anybody tell me this. He wants to know he's going to get 
uh, on the first day. But in the Apple example in the book, I've got all this stuff like uh, and all the numbers and all the ratios, and it can get very boring with the metrics just by sitting here and listening to me. So I'll stop talking about that. That's a very interesting point. It actually made me curious to ask you this question. So in addition to this investing aspect, what valuable insights and lessons did you learn uh, from researching and writing case studies on Warren Buffett's life? I was doing some research right before our talk, and I know this is for women, primarily your podcast. And I, I, can't, I, I thought to myself, I go, oh, Buffett, he hired Tracy Britt. I think it was in 2009, she was out of Harvard. She's originally from Kansas. She went to school at Harvard. She was an entrepreneur, just like Warren was as a kid. She wrote to him when she was like 24 years old after she got out of Harvard and asked for a job to go work for Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett hired her <laughs> when she was 24. That's a, that's a big lesson to all of us. You never know what can happen. And so what he did was he made her like the assistant of financial controller. He created a new position for her and uh, she was learning from Warren Buffett every day. So she did that, I want to say for 11 years, Tracy Britt, I think her last name was cool. She got married. There were rumors that she was going to be in the running to take over the company when Warren retired or passed away. And then she left. She started her own company. She had that entrepreneurial urge probably because she was an entrepreneur as a kid. Uh, she still wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur and she started her own investment firm with another guy from Berkshire Hathaway who broke away too. There were two of them that started this this new firm. So that's a lesson to, to anybody out there. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, a woman could be anybody that you don't know until you try. What's the worst thing that can happen is he'll say no. Another thing that I learned from Warren was persistence. Uh, he loves people that are persistent. And that's something that you should take with you for the rest of your life is you need to be persistent. Just because somebody says no to you doesn't mean that whatever it is you're doing can't work. Try again. Try with somebody else. Do something different. Now, he said no to me uh, the first time that I applied to go visit him. And then I thought, well, what if I do this? I'm thinking outside of the box. I created this uh, case study. That was my way of thinking outside of the box and being persistent. And it paid off. So I know he likes both of those things. And if they're good enough for Warren Buffett, they're good enough for me. Uh, I'll pass that lesson along. You know, I've been around for quite a while. I'm a little bit older, and I started investing when I was 23. And I wanted to share with, with everybody some things that you can do to help out your uh, financial career or financial situation. First, pay off your debt. So number one on my list here, pay off your student loans as soon as you can and pay off your credit cards. And if you have a mortgage, six or 7%, I would say pay that off as well. My wife had a financial advisor. I didn't, because I was managing my own money. He he really emphasized pay off your house. You might've been able to, to, to make a little bit more money somewhere else, but 
the the stress release that you have from paying off your house, then you know it, it's a lot less stressful. Now, if you're younger, 16 to 26, you don't have to worry about that stuff. Really, what you should be doing is trying to save money and put it away in a tax-deferred fund, or if you've already paid taxes on it, into a Roth IRA and just dollar cost average in, into an index fund and, and do that and let it sit there until you're 65 and you'll be wealthy. I could almost guarantee you that. So the stock market has gone up out of the past uh, 94 years. I think I was looking at it today. 70 years it's been up and 24 years it's been down. So overall, the stock market goes up. And the research shows that the average, the S&P goes up 10% a year. So uh, over the long run, you know, I wish somebody would have told me this when I was young. Uh, save your money and invest it and let it sit. Don't touch it. Let it roll. This is what Warren Buffett told us. Uh, and he started to tell us this about seven or eight years ago. If you're not spending every day in the financial markets, working in them full time, put 90% of your money into the S&P 500 and 10% into a short-term bond. He said, I'm doing that with my wife. After he dies, that he has all of his money like that, and it's moving over to his wife. Oh, well, another thing that he did that's kind of funny is he made a bet on the SPY, S&P 500 versus the hedge funds. And I'm not sure if you heard about this, but the fund of funds, uh, there was this guy, Doug Cass, that was at the meeting, and he made Warren Buffett a bet of a million dollars that his fund of funds, like five hedge funds would outperform Warren Buffett's selection, which was the S&P 500. So I was there during the first year and I was there every year when this was going on. And every year, the S&P 500, he put it up, was outpacing the fund of funds and the whole crowd. There'd be 40,000 people at the shareholder meeting. We're going nuts because they'd see Warren's winning. And just by putting it into the S&P index, by the end of the 10th year, the average rate of return on the S&P 500 was 7.1% a year, and the hedge fund was 2.2% a year. The, the money that they both put up ended up going to charity, to Girls Inc. The thing is, is that if you let it sit there and ride when you're 20 years old until you're 65, like I said before, you're going to be wealthy. Dollar cost average, index fund long-term, that would be my recommendation. How does Warren Buffett achieve such a remarkable and unconventional success as both an investor and manager? And how does his unconventional leadership style contribute to his success as a CEO? Is there any way that average investor or founder can apply his methods in their life and their career and business? What did Warren Buffett do to uh, become so successful is his leadership style. So he has, the way he manages his decentralization, trust plays a big part in that. His corporate headquarters in Omaha has only 26 people. And I believe that Berkshire Hathaway has 350 or 60,000 employees, something like that. So think about that. I mean, 26 people, are you kidding me? You know, you know how many people must be trying to call 
Warren Buffett every day or send him letters and everything. So he has everything decentralized. He has he has total trust in his managers. He has 62 separate companies that he owns. And he understands that they need that freedom and that independence. That's primarily what motivates entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are not motivated primarily by money. Entrepreneurs are motivated by freedom and independence, and he's giving them that. He's so smart by doing that. He's letting them control their own destiny, and he's giving them creative power. When he buys a firm, what he usually does is he buys 80% of it, and he lets management have 20% to motivate management. Decentralization based on trust that stimulates creativity and entrepreneurship. I think he brings his values to the company as well. And by that, I mean, when I interviewed Susie Buffett, she said, people don't understand how much he cares about social issues, economic issues, injustice, women's rights, things of that nature. And uh, it was nice to hear that. You know, another thing that she said uh, was that when they were growing up, Every night at the dinner table, they would have somebody from a disadvantaged background eating dinner with them at the table. So that was the, the environment that she grew up in, that Warren and his wife, who Su Susie was his wife, you know, Susie Jr. is his daughter. His wife was really an amazing person and she helped people and she gave back to the community. She, before she died, she was going to be the one that was going to get all the money from Warren and give it to charity. And then what Warren ended up doing is just giving most of it to the Bill Gates Foundation in Seattle. And his three kids each got $2 billion for their own foundations. Another thing I think that he does remain so successful, and I've heard him and Charlie talk about this several times, is that if you don't have the stomach to lose 50% of your worth in stock or bonds or whatever, you shouldn't be in the stock market. Over the years, they've been together for over 50 years. Berkshire Hathaway was founded in uh, 1965. They have lost 50% of their value of their stock three times. So the long term is what I'm trying to say. Warren's just really smart and he's a quick learner. And he knows what to look at and what not to look at. He knows what to ignore. For example, he always says, don't, don't pay attention to the day-to-day -day activities of the stock market. It's all noise. That would be an example of he knows what to look at and what not to look at, what not to waste your time with. One, one thing I think that he does now is he'll invest in, in firms that he already owns. He's been doing a lot of that lately with... Occidental Petroleum. So Occidental Petroleum, oh, he's been just buying up a ton of that over the past two years. And he filed for up to purchasing up to like 50% uh, of it. He says he's not going to buy it. And I believe him. I'm, I'm, I don't know why he would lie. But he also owns a lot of Chevron too. So, you know, gas, it's only a limited amount of gas that's out there. That would be my guess on why he's doing what he's doing. What would you tell to our listeners if they wanted to be another Warren Buffett? 
create your, your circle of confidence and become an expert within the industry and learn all you can about all the competition and the pricing and the products, who has the competitive advantage, who's got the best management team, all these different questions that you need to ask yourself before you invest. And of course, the emotional discipline. I think that's really his biggest competitive advantage is Warren has just steel for nerves. When the market collapses, he'll go in and buy. Buy when the market's down and he won't even sell when it's up. <laughs> he just, he'll just buy when it's down. And I, I'll give you an example of that back in 2008 in October in the New York Times when the market was down like 37%, wrote a little editorial saying, buy the U.S. market today. He told all of us to do that. Now, did he get the timing right? No, he didn't get the timing right. It went down another like 20%. But if you would have bought that day, you would have been great. So he he has nerves of steel and he, he'll buy when everybody's selling. He's got his own saying about that, buy when there's blood in the streets and sell when everybody's buying. Uh, also, another thing that he does is he's a learning machine. He is always learning all the time. He reads all the time. He's 92. He's going to be 93 in August, and he's still reading all the time. And Charlie's the same way, and Charlie is 100. No, no, he'll be 100 next year. He's 99, <laughs> 99 and 92. Uh, and uh, they both went to the same grade school, by the way, but at different times. I learned a lot. I feel that I'm much better when it comes to financial situation and the decisions that I make. And a lot of that has to do with benchmarking what I do off of what Buffett does in the behavioral bias chapter and being a good person. You know, there's quite a few things that are in there. You know, and I made sure that that I hit on these things in the book because you know, I took uh, six groups of students to go visit Warren Buffett and consistently they would tell me that the, the most important thing that they learned from him was how to become a better person. It wasn't how to make money. It was It was that. So for one, you know, he would tell us really early on when we visited him that the most important decision that we were going to make in our life is who we marry. And it's nice to be able to hear that if you're 20 years old, because you've got a, lo a long runway before you do get married. And uh, uh, for me, it was uh, already too late. <laughs> and so, uh, and persistence that we talked about earlier, you know, he he values that and creativity. And I say, surround yourself with people. This is what I say, and I'll tell you what Warren says. I say, surround yourself with people that love you, care about you, and want you to be successful. And I say that to my students year after year after year, continuously, and I drill that into their heads. And Warren will say something a little bit different. He'll say, Hang around with people that are better than you are. So combine both of those together and you'll get a, a good result. Um, I do try to hang around with people that are better than me, but I'm not 100% convinced that, that that's not the only thing that I should be doing because I don't want to just hang around with people that are better than me. 
uh, because there are people that I'm friends with from my childhood that I still want to be friends with and that I went through a lot with. So I'm not 100% with him on that one. Uh, he also says unconditional love is the most powerful thing. I agree with him on that. And uh, there's a quote in the book that that's a great quote, and I think about it all the time. It's a quote, I think, that came uh, from Benjamin Franklin, as a matter of fact. Never speak negatively about anybody. I will only speak good things about others. And that is such a powerful statement. So, you know, if you're standing around and hanging around somebody who's speaking negatively about others, is that the kind of person that you want to be around? Probably not. I like this last statement that Warren talks about. He goes, I will tell you how to become rich. Close the doors. Be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. That, that's the key to him being wealthy, according to Warren Buffett. Maybe you guys can do that too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Professor Finkel, for such a fantastic conversation. It has been an absolute pleasure for me to record a podcast with you and also share your timeless wisdom and advice with young women around the world. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity uh, to talk about your book and to also share some of the lessons that you've had learned from Warren Buffett. And for everybody listening, we'll have links to all the books and resources that Professor Finkel has mentioned today. So please make sure to check FMS Finance Podcast LinkedIn as well as Instagram page for more resources. And until next time, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you for having me. And uh, if your listeners need anything, please reach out. You can grab me at finkel at gonzaga.edu. Thank you for listening to the FEMAS Finance Podcast. I hope you learned something new today. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode, so please don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you so much and have a nice day.